Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Gordon Keep is one of the unsung legends of the Canadian capital markets. Over his 35-year career, he's built or contributed to building over 250 companies. Some of them have become incredible wins. From his early days in the venture exchange, through to his enduring partnership with Frank Justra, one of Canada's most prolific mining financiers, he's been a key man in building incredible success stories. The list seems almost endless, but includes the likes of Wheaton River, Eurasia, Lithium X, Lionsgate Entertainment, and the list goes on. You'd think that his experience would leave him jaded by the regulators, the exchange, and the state of the markets, but Gordon comes at it from a very refreshing perspective. Sure, he has his criticisms, but overall, he recognizes the powerful and unique tool that is the TSX venture and the ecosystem that we're in. This is a history lesson where Gordon reflects on some of the deals that put Canada on the map as a major player in the international resource space. This is also a tactical discussion. We discuss listing through CPCs, RTOs, and IPOs, what to pay for a shell, how to pick good partners, how to tactfully take profits. We also talk timing. They won huge on uranium, gold, lithium, but lost on potash. In Gord's words, they missed it by eight or nine months. What was supposed to be an hour-long interview turned into almost four hours of a discussion. It felt like a crash course in public venture capital and operating a public company. As such, I've split this interview into two parts. Stay tuned as Gordon has a ton of experience to share with you. So when I did my research and, and reached out to you, it, it struck me. I mean, it is 35 plus years of, of both figuratively and literally finding gold. And as, as we, we discussed earlier, the working through Yorkton and through some now 250 public companies you've been involved with? Yeah, I think that's around, uh, I don't know the exact number, but it's plus or minus 25 from that. Uh, okay. Companies I created. Uh, some of them are the same company. Right? You, you do a deal, you drill, it fails, whatever reason it fails. You restructure it, which I know is one of your later questions, to make it usable again, and then you go and try again. Some of them we may have used the same vehicle three or four times. Um, but that's, again, part of why people like the Venture Exchange and why shareholders will participate is because any good management team doesn't abandon their vehicle at the end of the day. Even if it doesn't work, all right, well, let's give you another shot. Granted, you're not getting near your money back on those situations because there's for one rollback or whatever is part of it, but at least it doesn't go to dust. You get another shot at something, and average down is the ugly saying. Is right. You're averaging down means you lost money. In that, then, you surely have taken perhaps what was a failed project and turned that around. Do no, you have any no, memorable actually, stories? We really haven't done a lot of that. Um, that's, that concept's more of an industrial concept in my mind, where you take a product that's not selling well, but most of our areas in the resource space. So we take failed companies or failed shells that have been something else and I will work with uh, my partners and we'll acquire a vehicle from someone that had it before and was unsuccessful and doesn't want to have to answer those shareholder questions anymore and hand the company off to us, usually at a fairly discounted price. but they know that they've handed it off to a group that will find something. So I look at it more that we create a lot of different companies and different ideas rather than go and rescue. Of the 250 things that we would have stepped in that's and staying in the same business, that would probably be less than 20. It's mostly where we find a vehicle that's that's been busted up by whatever reason, bad management, bad asset, that structure, and then we uh, take it, fix it up, 
and go into uh, a space that we think is the market wants to fund and the market wants to uh, invest in. And that changes back in, as you say, in the gold company. Back in the Yorkton days, gold was really the only thing that was financeable. The coppers and the lithiums and the uraniums and the rest of that were not. The gold space had a lot of different impetuses to create new opportunities. We had gold moving up, talking about the late, early 90s, late 80s, in price, and then people were funding it. And then you may even be too young to really remember this, but South America didn't have any Western exploration done for 30 years. And it was mostly socialistic type governments there at the time. Chile was the first to allow Western capital to come in and all of a sudden their GDP and everything else had rise significantly with all the copper mines and so on. And it almost folded overnight. It was, it was incredibly how quickly Venezuela and Colombia and Argentina all opened up. You have, at that point, you had projects that hadn't had any real capital thrown at them, as I said, for 30 years. There was a whole bunch of great assets out there that were privately owned by, by families in, in South America, and they were looking to either advance them or sell them, uh, Mexico as well, for that matter. And uh, that provided a huge opportunity. That's really probably where Frank and myself and the Yorkton team really made our original mark was being early into South America. At one point, Frank could walk into almost every president of the country's office and we would know him. It was as ridiculous as we opened an office in Santiago and everyone looked at us and said, what are you opening an office in Santiago for? There's no money in Santiago. We weren't opening an office in Santiago for money. We were opening an office so we would then have people to talk to who wanted to sell us assets. Because the world runs on assets. Money you can find anywhere, but you need to find good assets. So that's why we opened our office in, in Santiago and sent a lady down from here and hired a, a local Chilean. And it was a very successful office. Uh, Catherine McLeod, who went down there, ended up uh, making her original fortune with when she left there and, and bought an asset in Peru, Eric ended up taking her company over on some very smart decisions that got through. In that time, there must be some, some amazing stories that defined your career. What comes to mind? There's, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, Venezuela, which today is a pariah state, uh, what is now Crystal X and all the fighting over, over that area, it, was, it really opened up. And, so Ian Telfer and Robert Friedland and ourselves all did a deal together called Vengold, which was actually the company that paid off my mortgage um, and bought my golf membership. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that one's, I remember well. But there were so many of them. Uh, there really was. Uh, and it was really how the business evolved. Uh, we were early adopters and, and finished part of the story that was late in the cycle. So, uh, RBC went down to uh, look at an asset. The vendor said, well, who are you? We want to talk to the big guys. We want to talk to Yorkton <laughs> because we had an office there and they've been dealing with us. And little do they know, it's whatever billions of dollars of market cap that Royal Bank was back in the mid-90s, whereas we were like a 10 million uh, funded brokerage firm. So it just shows how by being in the place, right? access to us. People actually thought we were cats meow. But again, I'm really getting kind of ancient history here because this is 30 years ago, 25 years ago. But Toronto would not fund the venture market back then. The institutions in Toronto, there's very few of them that would gravitate towards that space. It was too junior for them. So there was two other um, aggressive but Toronto-based firms that held first marathon and uh, Gordon Capital. They had they had access into the institutional marketplace in mm -hmm. Toronto, but they didn't have access to deal flow. So we started to do deals with them, where we would bring project, we'd bring the retail and, and Western institutional community that was already participating, and they would bring 
institutional capital from the Toronto part. And we did a lot of deals with them. And call ourselves the unholy trinity, but uh, <laughs> um, you know that's how the Toronto market, in a lot of ways, uh, decided that the risk taking in the venture space was worth it because they were making good returns on their money and they didn't have to wait to be the guys that bought the stock at five bucks. They could be in there at the 25 and 50 cent financing as it went from there. In doing some of my research, I came across a Globe Mail article. The writer, he penned a piece there about saying, through a Byzantine system of shell companies, furtive share purchases and elaborate compensation schemes is the way this... Uh, That's the whole article. It is. It everybody's it, picture in it, that one? Or yeah. <laughs> so it, apparently it was updated in 2017, but when you read that, it comes across as a bit nefarious. But in the discussion we're having, there's, I think there's a, a story that needs to be told to help clarify that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to answer that perfectly, but, you know, success does breed jealousy. Um the compensation thing is wrong. That's not how we make our, our money. We may have contracts with companies that if we help them do an M&A, we get a fee for it. But, yeah, we are, I don't know if we're criticized. I think the system is criticized, and we're criticized because we've had some success at it and have been able to repeat that success. Um, that because we acquire the cheap shares at the early stages, that we've got a low cost base finance the company and like lithium x is a recent example where we went out at 15 cents 50 cents dollar two then a dollar 62 constantly raising prices higher as the asset develops and we ultimately sold it i think at two dollars and 61 you know we had people that like ourselves that own shares from that vehicle probably i don't remember what the price was but it would have been somewhere between three and five cents a share so yeah we those people that have those shares made a lot of money if they held on all the way to 261. Um, obviously, the early adopters were the 15 cent financing, that's what the market would there. And then as it started to succeed, then we were able to do another, I can't remember, 50 or 60 cent round. And so those guys did very well. Dollar two guys ended up doing very well. Dollar 62, it, they bought near the top, it went down. Then when we sold it at a significant premium, 261, they all made a lot of money. So it can look like we've got a, an oversized return because we're in early and we're taking the risk early and we're putting the package together. So I think that's where that's coming from. We, we didn't steal anybody's money. We didn't rip anybody off in, in the sense that, that as soon as it got to 50 cents, we blew all our shares in the market and, and we're gone. That's what some people assume is happening. Um, obviously, if you end up in that situation where you have the opposite occur, where, you, where it runs up to a dollar two, and then the world decides that it doesn't like whatever that product is, in the case of lithium, which the lithium space has softened out, um, the stock might go down to 50 cents. And then they all say, well, look at how much they assume we all sold at a dollar, of course, and sell to the top. And then they complain that, that we took advantage of it. We didn't. We wrote the whole thing up and down with them. We put in our own money at the various levels as well. So there has been some criticism on that, but I think it's misinformed and not knowing how it's all put together. Um, but yes, we do make outsized returns because we know how to do it and we do it properly. We've never had a regulatory problem. I've been sued once and that was uh, for takeover bid that we started that they didn't like and it wasn't me personally, it was the company that was on the board of, and uh, we settled for a million dollars, which shows how immaterial the thing was. Yeah, so, so I don't know where it's really coming from, besides people not really knowing how, how the system works, or what risks are in there, or, or, or what happened. The stock exchange, when I joined it in August 83, they had one policy. One policy. Stock option policy. It's the only policy they have. That was a wild west. The rest was seat of the pants, uh, who you knew kind of approach. 
uh, in 83, the new VP, Doug Garrett, um, made a conscious decision to upgrade the right word, but to have more professionals in the listings department. So you hired a bunch of CAs, lawyers, MBAs um, to become the listing people. Once he had that team in place, <clears throat> he then set about creating the policies that are the stock exchange today. So my cohort of 10 of us that were sort of there for three years created what I think is a tedious adventure as, as we know it today with obviously some bolt-ons after yeah. that. There was 24 policies in place when we left. Well, all the policies, everything in there. And there was half of them were reactions to Murray Pesham type deals uh, or abuses or the Carter Ward scandal or the other things that happened in the mid 80s. Right. But it really wasn't any regulation. Um, so it was a very fascinating time to be there. And it was very educational. And those of us who were there, and I've been on the advisory committee for stock exchange since I left the stock exchange. I've always been associated with policy making. Um, I know why the policies are there. The guys that are administering have no idea how they got their first place and what the actual original logic for them being was. So right. Obviously, as the industry's matured, the policies have, have matured with them. Uh, and gone through changes and you know, more restrictive, less restrictive, depending on how many David Bean's articles are coming out being very negative or some other, uh, uh, when it was called the scam capital of the world uh, by New York papers and so on. So everyone was reacting to try and figure out how we could improve the reputation. I think it's got a good reputation after all the years of trials and errors and, and uh, fixes. So in your, your opinion, today's, venture in today's markets are in a better condition than than were in past. Oh, definitely. Uh, they're, they're, it's a much better market in the sense that there are, I don't know if control, never use the right words, there's certain oversight and responsibilities and so on into the marketplace, it, more so than a lot of other stock exchanges in the world. I think the TSX Venture is Unique, uh, the closest would probably be the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, AIM, which was the junior London market, tried to figure out how to get into that space. They never have and never did, and now they've sort of walked away from it. Australia, of course, collapsed in the 90s initially, and it's now coming back, but it's never gone global, except for maybe South America and Africa a little bit. Um, but the venture exchange is still where most American people come up to. There is no equivalent in the U.S. NASDAQ is not the same. The rules on the junior New York exchange, which used to be MX, that's not the same either. Uh, it's just very logical or there's a certain amount of, of structure, I guess is the right word, with policies and expectations and commission. And, Securities Act policies that allow the exchange to operate, it's still a high-risk market, high-venture market, don't get me wrong, but it's, I think it's a very efficient, um, well-run uh, market that people doing it the right way will find success. So what would you say to those who have, who are operators or CEOs who look and say, it's too regulated, this is too hard to operate? What are they missing? I think a lot of what you hear there is, is hearsay. And there's a lot of people who complain about the exchange delays this, or that takes too much time. Uh, most of that is, is not true. If you know what you're doing and you're doing it properly and, and, and doing it in proper fashion, in a timing fashion, and, and you have a proper team managing the process, there are times in which they definitely overreach uh, or occasionally you'll get some biases from individuals within the organizations that that hold things up um, and they've got they're working on that they're constantly trying to fix that uh, 
they've got the problem where to train someone to do their job, it's a two or three year process to get a really top notch person who's seen enough to know where to say yes and where to say no and where to have some flexibility. Which is again one of the things I like about the exchange is they they have a set of policies, but they're prepared to amend them individually uh, if if you uh, have a reason that they should, and the reason is logical or unique or uh, not offensive to what the policies are saying. Uh, so uh, that's skill, obviously. I, mm. I was asked in knowing where the, the hot spots are and where the Flexible spots are because I've been doing it for thirty years. Right. So, you know, I know. I know where where the ones that, that you can't move and, and the ones that, as long as you have a reasonable set of expectations, you can negotiate with the exchange to come up with a reasonable solution. Is it overregulated? Sometimes. Definitely. Sometimes. Uh, a lot of people complain about that process. I think more of that is a function of the way the Securities Act is not Most people entering into this space don't know the difference between the two organizations and what their roles are. And they often blame the stock exchange for things that the stock exchange doesn't I'm sounding like a cheerleader for the stock exchange. <laughs> I, I do think it's 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 well run, I think it's a good institution and properly managed. Can serve its role of, of capital formation. Sorry. No, don't be. Please, I, you know, I, I don't want to just interrupt, but I definitely want to. There's so many questions I want to ask, but be conscious of time as well. So, Fair enough. Um, if you don't mind, I'll jump in every sure. once in a while. Uh, with um, with that, that difference between the regulators and the, the exchange itself. The exchange uh, is a form of regulator, but. Uh, certainly. And then on top, you have the regulators. What what do you see there? What do you what's your your impressions or your feeling about the the state of regulations now, uh, comparing to the past or to anything that uh, what, what's what's your impression of the regulators at this point? Uh, well, right now, I think it's not in a bad spot. Uh, it can still can get better. Um, there's been ebbs and flows over the thirty years. It hasn't all been you know, easy pie or whatever or the exchange has had different approaches at times where they've been uh, very draconian in their approach and that's because they got burnt on something and, and got their wrists slapped by the commissions or the general media or whoever. So they've, they've had to react back and forth in really hot markets. You get a lot of crap thrown at the exchange because people can raise money on the back of next to nothing sometimes. And then tough markets, they can't raise any money. And so the exchange has always got these sort of temporary policies that they take in and out to try and adjust to what's happening with the market. Um, uh, and, but they're never perfectly on time and on sync on time because it takes a while till it filters to their level and the people who get frustrated with the process. But the, the Securities Commission side of the equation is still a little bit messy in that you've still got the 13 jurisdictions. You've got Ontario who has historically has been trying to make sure a national commission came out with them at the head of it. Um, that's why it's never happened because the rest of the provinces aren't gonna let them lead it. And the current um, proposal, which has been sort of dormant for the last three or four years, uh, but started about seven years ago, I guess it was, uh, national regulator when BC and Ontario and the feds agreed to try and create such an instrument and set it and Ontario was prepared to take an equal provincial role not a dominant provincial and myself and a few others were advisors to Minister Young on the BC side as that was getting set up it now has got sort of hung up by a changes the governments um, everywhere uh, and that's the problem with securities regulations is that they're provincially so every time you have a different premier who has a different mandate or has different ideas they don't necessarily keep the process moving forward 
same with the federal government, is no longer as strongly supportive of the process and pushing the process as it was when Flaherty was alive. The concept's a good one, where you do not have any dominant province, um, and you have a situation where you only have to go through one body to make changes. Right now, the whole periods, for instance, which used to be 18 months at the beginning of my career, are now down to four months. People think they should go to zero, or some people think they should go to zero. To make any of those changes, you can do it just in BC, or you can do it just in Alberta, which is historically what's happened in BC and Alberta, had fairly common approaches to regulation. Um, the CPC program actually came out of Alberta as the JPC, Junior Bulldog. Uh, which then got adopted by us and then got adopted by the country. So most of the innovations, whole period, shortening, short form prospectuses stuff, most of that came out of the West, out of Alberta and BC. And after Ontario realized the world hadn't fallen apart, they decided they'd let it come into them. So the advantage of having one, ultimately, if it ever does happen, is that you don't have to go back to each legislation each time to get changes done. Because any change that has to go through 13 legislatures can take three, four years. Just with government changes, nothing happens fast in the legislature. Of course. That's why most of the acts are now set up. It's in the policy section when most of the changes are going to be made. They can be made in the regulatory level rather than at the legislature. So, the, but even there, you still have to have 13 different regulators decide that that's a good thing. And they all have different mandates. Uh, Toronto's mandate is, per is predominantly uh, to mo uh, mirror image what's going on in the US. And that doesn't generally apply to the TSA Century. So they're not, historically, they have not been overly concerned about the venture market. If it's collateral damage because of some policy, but it allows them to mirror image what's going on in the US. Uh, so they can have the Royal Banks and the, the, the major companies that make up the TSX 300 uh, be able to survive and, and, and raise capital. That's all it is. Uh, I see that the political uh, so, so it, interest. It's, an issue. It, it's 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 a tough area. The good news is we have uh, this uh, area. What the heck is it called now? I can't remember. But there's a. Everybody but Ontario is a member of it, and they all adopt each other. So in other words, you file a prospectus in BC, you nationally file it as well, except for as well as Ontario, but every other province, they rely on BC. If BC says this document's okay to raise money off the back of, the others just blanket, rubber stamp it, so you don't have to have 13 different people giving you comments. Ontario has never joined that, as I said before make sure that the National Commission, that was their, and they weren't going to, oh, now having said that, I'm trying to throw Ontario completely on the bus. For most cases, they go along with what the CMA uh, recommends and does, and they participate in it, even though they're not a member. And they're just, they are the biggest province. So. Anyway, with that. Getting way into the regular yeah, side. I, well, but it plays such a big part in how a company exists within the marketplace. Right. For a CEO out there who's running a junior company on the venture or uh, or the CSE, what should they know about that? What should they be aware of to make sure they can navigate that that landscape? It's really only uh, material to them when they're going public or raising capital, because that's when you're touching those organizations. Um, and you know, we talked offline previously as to RTOs versus CPCs versus IPOs, um, and the reason that I predominantly, one of the reasons, sorry, there's quite a few, but one of the reasons I predominantly do RTOs versus CPCs or uh, IPOs is on an RTO, the jurisdiction has been transferred to the stock exchange. So you don't have to deal with 13 commissions, you deal with the stock exchange. 
stock exchange isn't quite as encumbered by regulations and sister province regulations. Uh, so they have more flexibility to negotiate with you in how to structure your deal or what disclosure needs to be done, what financial disclosure. There is, you know, a base document, but there's always tweaks. And if you know, I've run into this many times when I file something with the commission in BC and they said, yeah, we, we agree with you, but unfortunately Ontario won't, therefore we can't give you a receipt for your perspectives because they won't co-receive it, which means you can't go forward. So you, you, they always have to be cognizant of what their sister provinces hot buttons are or, okay. or other areas. So so as a CEO, you got to recognize that you're, you're, you're stuck in that environment. You can get end up in you know, the ugly vortex where you're spinning around and never getting out of the environment because it's, it's one thing after another or they, the two of them don't agree. And now what do you do when you've got two regulators who won't tell you which way to go because they each have a different opinion. And then add to that a lawyer who perhaps is... Well, hopefully you're, I mean, that's... Cooking fees to... Well, you, you hope your, your lawyer's not doing just to make fees, but you do need to answer another part of the question. In dealing with them, you can't just have someone who did your wills come and do your securities. You've got to have someone that knows the system, understands where the areas are. Um, obviously, my business is, is helping companies do this and giving them my... 83 to now, 35 years experience uh, in, in managing this process and understanding if you get a no from any regulator, is that a real no or is that just come and talk to us about how this can be tweaked a little better or explain to us? Because you've got to remember when, uh, when you're giving documents to these regulators to look at, they're looking at what you sent them. They don't have all that history of five years that you've been running this company and everything that you know that's that just seems obvious to you, but it isn't because they're only reading what's in front of them. So, so they're providing comments on that, and sometimes their comments are kind of weird because they don't have all the facts. They don't have full context. And exactly. So is exactly. there is there a benefit when communicating with the, the regulators, the commissions, or the exchange to over-communicate or... What have you found works works best? That's a delicate balance. Um, and again, if you have someone that's experienced in the process, they'll know what they need to know, and they'll know what you don't need to tell them. Because sometimes too much information gets them bogged down and thinking about stuff that really isn't material to the end result. Uh, and you can get you can find yourself all of a sudden having to generate a whole bunch more information to give them which really wasn't pertinent to the area. But the people are, these are people they're looking at, it's not machines. So they're always curious themselves, right? Everyone has, they're in the business, they understand the business, but if something's a little out of what they're used to seeing, you know, as we go through the cryptocurrencies and these other changes which are new to the, uh, to the community, they want to learn as well. So they may actually bog you down educating themselves about your business. And I don't mean that as negatively as it sounds, it just, if you tell them too much, it, it may be not overly helpful. It can actually create a lot more paperwork. But I've seen a lot of situations where a company will send in the materials, do exactly as they're asked, so they follow procedure, they haven't done anything wrong, and they get back an eight-page deficiency letter, which is not atypical. A lot of it is repetitive stuff, so it's really probably boils down to two or three pages but they take it as written, i.e., please tell me this. And they look at it and they talk to the lawyer and they go, oh my God, this is going to take me three weeks to answer this question. And a lot of times those questions are throwaway questions by, by the regulator. Just they're asking a question to be informed. If it really is going to be a huge energy waste or not actually produce valuable response, because some of it won't, um, you just phone them on. You say, this question's stupid. It doesn't make sense. It's not going to come out. It, even if I spend three weeks giving you, you're still not going to know what to do with it, right? That kind of thing can happen often, especially if it's outside the, you know, the mining world where it's with 43101, there's not a lot of variations. But anything that's not directly related to that can have 
interesting quirks to it. So I always recommend to the people, take the questions, answer the ones you can answer, don't fight stuff you don't need to fight, and if there's four or five areas where you just don't think that they've asked you the right question, again, this is one of the things I tell my staff, you never answer someone a question, question because they may not have asked you the right question. You find out if they've asked you the right question, then you give them an answer. applies to my partners as well. I will not let my staff talk to my partners until they actually understand fully that the question is a proper question. The exchange and, and, the, and the commissions are no different than that. They are just, they're reading it. They've got tons of these companies coming through. So they're maybe doing five a day, who knows, maybe more in some of the smaller stuff. And they're just banging out sort of routine questions. And they're not always right. So go and talk to them and say, okay, I can't give you this, but if I give you this, and they're pretty good. There's, I've never really had a problem with the exchange not taking a meeting to discuss a letter or discuss some issues. Their role is to get your company listed and funded so they can add it to the roster and get trading fees and listing fees and see a successful company they can put up on the board. So they're not there to harm you, but they're also there to protect the reputation of the kids that venture. Venture has a pretty good reputation around the world. It's really interesting to hear that perspective. I and mean, having been through a few deals myself, it's uh, it's really easy to get wrapped up in the frustrations of of having to deal with those those questions, those letters, the regulators, uh, and I think perhaps for some it, it too easily becomes a common enemy. Uh, yes, I mean, but. I also have the benefit of a lot of experience, <laughs> including right. having drafted some of the policies, or been part of drafting some of the policies. We touched on it a bit, but can we go into more the the differences you see between listing processes from IPO to CPC, QTs, and on, all the acronyms that go along with, uh, with them? Can we dive into each one and then specifically speak to why you've chosen a path? Sure. What order do you want to do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you choose. Well, I'll, we should do RTOs last because that's where I'm going to spend all my time talking. Okay. The CPC concept really is an interesting genesis of how it started as a JCP, Junior Capital Group out of Alberta. And they, and it's, it's kind of weird that, you know, we're all adults, we're all in the finance world, but you you have cultures that come from different places. So in Calgary, which of course is the oil and gas center of Canada, uh, they had a certain culture about how JCP should work, which is you create a shell company or a shelf company, I guess, and you uh, seed capital with, back in those days, we're, we're talking um, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So they're, but they more or less knew where they're gonna go what asset they were going to put into it before they went public, which was not the culture of Vancouver. Uh, we thought that was offside because if you knew what you're going to put in, that should be in the perspectives. And so we had our own venture capital pools or something that Vancouver called it when it was the ASC and the VSE. Um, but as part of the maturation of the industry, when, when we merged to create the CDNX briefly, when it was just Alberta and BC merged, we came to a common understanding. So it, it, you, you can't know for sure what's in there, but a lot of people that create CPCs have an idea. A lot of people are simply creating them, so they're ready to go when someone has an asset. As an example, last year's uh, cryptocurrency boom between, not last year's, it's a year and, year and a bit yep. now. Yep. The September to December of 17 hypermarket in the crypto space, if you had a CPC, you could go and try and find it. If it was already created and, and done, you could at least at that point go in and cut a deal with somebody who had whatever form of crypto that was going to be financeable at the time and get launched fairly quickly. So that was the advantage of the CPC. The money that was in the treasury was really just walk around money. That, that's in most cases, the four to 500,000 is not going to build the business. It's just going to cover the legal fees and doing the business and getting started up. The other advantage that the exchange has done is, and the commissions have allowed, is CPCs, I think, I don't actually know because I don't do them, 
think they can raise up to $3 million now. So they have real money now. Uh, and that was, again, one of the adaptations that's happened over the years. Uh, change is, is adapting to what the market needs and wants. The problem with that, again, which the adaptations have happened, that before you'd have to go back to your shareholders that bought the seed level and say, I'm going to acquire this crypto deal, um, please vote yes. Exchange, after doing this for as many years as it's been, and never having a no, shareholders have never, ever, ever voted it down. It's why are we making companies go through that 90-day process all the shareholders 60-day process, how quickly you can get it done. So now you don't have to do that if it's an arm's length transaction. Um, so they have adapted. So, so that helps in your timing. In those shares that are in the seed, there's a lot of escrow, uh, up to three-year, six-year, I think the six-year is gone now, but three-year, Old periods to the people that started up the company. Um, there was certainly a lot of risks that if you started a CPC and you didn't find an asset within 24 months, then theoretically it was supposed to be wound up money given back to uh, the original investors, whatever was left, and the founders who put in the original money and did all the work failed, of course, because the asset got zero. Um, so it was a high risk for those people to, to take still is nine times out of ten when the markets get soft like that and cpc is starting to fail the exchange will adapt their policies and say okay we'll give you three years or we'll do whatever they recognize that there's no deal flow there's no money in certain markets and give flexibility i think they're now allowing companies to turn themselves into next issuers and i apologize because i don't know exactly what happens to you but i think some shares get canceled out of the escrow but then you can get listed on X and be a regular shell that's a CPT. Um, the escrow causes problems for some people. Uh, you still have to go through the regulatory process of doing the CPC, creating it, and the shareholder approval may or may not be a problem. The IPOs is, a, is an area I've just always stayed away from. I, that's not true. I think I've gone two or three. Um, and it's the function that I talked about at the beginning of this talk where you have too many problems with the commissions. They don't, phrase I use, they don't have a sense of humor. They, <laughs> they have a set of policies which are, they read as black and white. They, they're very limited in their ability to, to vary them because they're also tied into what they've agreed with the other provinces. So they, they don't have individual flexibility. And you can get bogged down. Financial statements is an area uh, you can get bogged down. In fact, as a total aside, <clears throat> in a deal which I did as an RTO, which is the biggest deal to this day ever done on the stock exchange called Eurasia, when we went, went to the stock market to raise another $150 million in, so we went public in November, and then we went to raise another $150 million in February, we bumped our head pretty hard against the commission's rules and policies, even though we had had a major accounting firm provide us with their opinions and so on. The commissions decided that financial statements we'd use, which were relevant to the situation, but necessary under the black and whites, weren't proper and we had not necessarily acted properly. So the long of that is that if I had actually tried to do that as an IPO, you never would have heard of that company. Never would have done that. Never money would have never got raised. Three mines that got built would have never done because of the regulatory uh, nightmare of getting stuck in something that they're not prepared to be flexible on. Luckily for us, in the time frame between November and February, we had actually taken control of the company, had produced proper financial statements, and could actually deliver it. So we were able to raise the money, but it cost us about a month. Friedland's kind of answer, you never sleep on it. On money, you don't waste a day or two. If it's ready to give it to you, take it. Because tomorrow, something could change. You have Trump in this market do anything <laughs> that can change the market, and all of a sudden the money isn't there. So the risks of the IPO, in my mind, are, can be too regulated. You can get caught in a lot longer time. That's one of them. And now turning to the RTO, what are the advantages of the RTO? And this is your chosen method. This is the chosen way I method. all our business. Some of them, are RTOs are actually with broken CPCs. So I don't actually know that it's a CPC. 
until I do my research later. But those are okay because they're already hitting an export and there's a whole set of policies that allows it to be just like another uh, RTO with one or two minor tweaks to it. So it's, it doesn't bother me if I find out after I negotiate an acquisition that there's this extra little piece of work involved. But the RTO has many advantages. You acquire some shares from the old shareholders, as I said, they'll sell to you at some cheap price. One of your questions in here was how do you make sure your structure's right? Well, you make sure that that uh, you know, the five shareholders that are selling you their block of stock, it's unlimited the number of people that can buy that stock. So uh, you want to make sure that everybody that you think is important to help build that company has a vested interest. If you're buying, for argument's sake, at two cents a share, two million shares, you're going to make sure that the people that buy those, that are offered those shares to, to help you build this company are people that will help as Bray Fletcher puts it, that village. It is the village. It's 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 everybody. It's 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 guys that are going to do the asset finding or evaluation or development. It's going to be the guys that are going to know all the various uh, forms and places you can go raise capital. So they want to go and help you raise the capital. Um, you have conflict of interest with the brokerage industry, so you've got to be careful that you aren't putting someone that you need in, in a conflict, so they have to manage those to make sure it works. Um, but, so, it's similar to the CPC, where you're creating with your own friendly shareholder base. Now, you're only getting so much to the shares because the rest is in the general public's hands. Um, but none of that is escrow. That's all free trading. So you don't have to worry, people don't have to worry that they have to wait three years to see if you're gonna be successful. And it's also not public. No one knows who owns those shares, uh, unless there's a party with uh, more than 10%, or that party becomes an insider of the company by director officer or other means, is public. So a lot of institutions or others that may participate later don't want their name up, so they want a private aspect of it. Um, but probably the biggest advantage, two biggest advantages on the RTO, one is you can announce your deal today and while you're preparing your disclosure document that the exchange will need before they'll bring you back to trade because they usually halt you on, on the announcement of the RTO, you can be raising your money. So in an IPO, you got to finish your prospectus, file your prospectus, get your prospectus in, which can take anywhere from three to six months, nine months, depending on how complicated your stuff is, and then you got to go to market. The market might be gone. Right, you've spent six months getting all your docu disclosure documents ready, and no one cares about crypto anymore. Right? You've missed it. So, what you want to do in the RTO is you want to have a pretty good idea before you acquire a, an asset that you think it's fundable, and and if you've got it, your 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 business going properly, you will announce the acquisition. And then you will go to your key players that you know like to fund early. That will take a risk. They've financed you in the past. So obviously, first timers, that's a little more difficult to do because they don't have a past. But those of us that have got a couple hundred of these behind us or, or 50 of these behind us or whatever, you've got a past. You've shown that you stick with your deal. You know, they're, they're comfortable putting money in um, early in the transaction. And if you're worried about the timing because even an RTO can take the quickest you can do one is like six weeks. Um, and that's, that's knowing what you're doing and, and really playing, cutting all the corners you can. Normal is sort of six months to 90 days is, is not unreasonable expectation and quite often can take as much as six months. I prefer not to get into those, but in the 60 to 90 day, Things. So you announce, so you have one group of your team which is working away on the disclosure document. The broker may or may not need a PowerPoint of something that they can use to go in and sell some of it. Let's say you're going to raise 10, 20 million bucks on the announcement. You're going to know where five of it, some of it's going to come out of your own pocket, some of it's going to come out of your others. You're going to have a lead order somewhere in the concept. 
people have talked to someone said, hey, if I get a gold deal in Peru that's got some sort of resource, will you be, is that what you're looking for? Will you give me money on the back of that? And so you'll have an idea who you're going to go to. It may or may not need to be marketed after that. So let's say you've got 10 done and 10 needs to go and find other pe people to join you. They can do that while you're doing your documents. So that can start the same day or if you need a PowerPoint drafted and you haven't done that in advance, then you know, spend a week tightening that up such that uh, the broker has something to talk with. But they can raise the money. And then you can you, you actually raise it. So you put it into escrow or into trust. Keep the terms different. Put it into a trust account with a transfer agent as a special warrant or some instrument like that, that such that if something happens and the deal dies or, or doesn't get approved, you can give the money back. So that's why it's a special warrant versus a straight share. But the money's there. The people can't take it back. So right. your money is done. You know, you, as soon as you get approval, you've got a deal. You, you go and develop the asset that you want to develop. The IPO, you can't do that. The CPC, you could. Especially now that they've got written a lot of shareholder approval. Um, so they're not that much different than the RTO now. But the RTO gives you control of time. And that to me is hugely important. You okay. don't have to wait for a regulator to tell you. Before you do your RTO, the first thing you do is you get together with your advisor group and you walk over the stock exchange and you say, here's the deal we're talking about. We're, here's our draft news release. What are the problems that you guys see? So that's the pre-meeting you, know, you should have. And they'll come up and say, well, you got this or this or that. There's always some uh, interesting wrinkles in, in something, and you may not have thought of it that's bumping against one of the regulatory or hot buttons. And then you talk in that meeting of how you're going to solve that problem or how you're going to get there. And then you announce, and you're ready to go. You know that tacitly, as long as what you said in that meeting doesn't change significantly, the stock exchange is going to ultimately approve it when you give the documents that back up what you say you're going to deliver. And in the interim, you can have that money raised. The money comes together, and now, now you just wait the last 30 days while you're going through a regulatory process. Thanks for listening to the first half of this interview. Given the time we spoke, it only made sense to split this into two episodes. Next week, we'll come out with the second half and get even deeper into some of the hot topics. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.